according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father in his faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning. And Father, I seem to have a little frog in my throat this morning, so do with that whatever you want to do. And Father, uh, provide for the word of God to go forth and not be impacted, not be limited, not be hampered by any human weaknesses on the part of the speaker or on the part of the hearers. Father, uh, hedge us about, protect us, hinder anyone that would want to come in here and bring us to harm. Father, uh, our nation is going through such darkness right now and Terrible things are happening in many places. So uh, we're in your hands, Father, for uh, what you choose to do to glorify your Son. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 4. We're going to break it down into three parts. Verses 1 through 9 is the first of these three segments. Chapter 4 begins with with practical applications that rapture reflection should prompt in the life of every church member. Rapture reflection, in other words, not just knowing the doctrine, but reflecting upon it, letting it dwell richly, making the rapture reality a living part of how you live day by day and moment by moment, because it truly does impact uh, our choices, it impacts our priorities, it impacts um, the things that would otherwise cause us to fly off the handle, you know, because if if it doesn't matter, if the rapture comes today, well then why am I worried about this other thing? And so it really gives a perspective. And uh, all of us should be reflecting upon the rapture constantly because that's our blessed hope. That's our day-by-day blessing to consider that today is the day that, uh, that we could be departing. And so a series of practical applications. That includes um, <clears throat> standing firm in the Lord. That includes getting along with that sister you just can't stand. That includes uh, combining together with a lot of folks for a mutual ministry of uh, of the gospel. That's uh, verse 3. That's constant rejoicing. And again, I say rejoice. That's a gentle spirit. The best testimony you have is a gentle spirit. And we'll uh, be discussing that. And then your non-anxious prayer life. Uh, the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. I'm going to try to explain that best as I can, but we're not going to comprehend it because it's, it surpasses comprehension. And then uh, guarding your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And why is it that we're not guarding what should be guarded? And it's that powerful prayer life that guards it. And then finally, brethren, uh, these, I I guess there are eight items, nine items, whatever it is, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise. All right, that's eight things. Dwell on these things. And so you've got a command for eight areas to keep your mind locked on. And uh, the more that uh, we get convicted of that verse right there, the more sins of omission we get exposed uh, or other uh, thought processes get exposed because I find that I've let my mind dwell on something that I can't define by that verse. Uh, My mind is dwelling on something. uh, It doesn't have to be sinful. It doesn't have to be horrible. It's just not on that list. It's not in that verse or it, it doesn't relate to Christ himself when it comes right down to it. All eight of these things are descriptions of Jesus and uh, beyond that uh, descriptions of things that we should be focused on related to Jesus. 
And so the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So that's uh, the first segment and really it's, uh, it's powerful and we'll, we'll be spending a bit of time on that. Once we get past that, then there's really uh, almost a side comment. It is a final item that Paul mentions prior to closing the epistle, and that's the grace financial provision that uh, he received. And he appreciated the grace that was sent from Philippi. So one final item Paul mentions prior to closing this epistle is the grace financial provision he appreciated from the Philippian saints through Epaphroditus. He had been the courier. He had been not only the agent who brought the funds, but then he stayed there and he became a messenger. He became a minister to the Apostle Paul as if he was the apostle of the church of Philippi sent, uh, commissioned to minister to Paul's needs. And so in verses 10 through 19, we'll be dealing with this. And it centers on money. So sometimes I guess that can make folks uncomfortable or whatever. We're not, we're not begging for money or, or teaching anything in legalism. This is really a powerful text to show uh, the blessings of grace and why grace is a win-win and why when you are the source of that grace, you're the one that profits, not the recipient of that grace. That is the, uh, as it says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And so Paul's receiving the cash but it's the Philippians that are profiting. And that happens with, with grace giving. That happens in the church age as we are part of the body of Christ. And as he says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so when grace is given, uh, the grace of God is supplied and it is always sufficient if, uh, if you have a dissatisfaction or you're approaching it on a legalistic basis, then uh, you've just destroyed your capacity to identify what is sufficient. But it's always sufficient and it always abounds when it's the grace of God and our capacity to appreciate it. And so that's the, the impact then of verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs, singular, not needs, plural. Cross that S off in your Bibles. There's no S there. It's a singular noun, need. My God will supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And that's, uh, that's a wonderful truth. So he has that. And then the conclusion to the epistle. Uh, the epistle closes with one of the shortest greetings and doxologies of, uh, of any Pauline text. Uh, verses 20 through 23. Really, um, nobody by name, uh, not a long list of, oh, I remember so-and-so, or oh, you know, say hi to that jailer for me. Uh, none of that, none of those names are mentioned personally. It's just uh, greet every saint in Christ Jesus and the brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And that's maybe the most startling thing in the whole paragraph is uh, the idea of Caesar's household coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What do we do with that? And uh, how do we understand that to be uh, and what does that mean when we get to that? All right, so those are the three portions. 1 through 9, 10 through 19, and 20 through 23 are the three segments that we're dealing with. So starting with verses 1 through 9, what I've titled Rapture Reflections and Response. So we know the rapture doctrine. We have the rapture doctrine in chapter 3, uh, unquestionably in verse 21, and then I believe also by inference in verse 11 and in verse 14. But unquestionably... 
as chapter 3 closes, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're on the edge of our seat. We're waiting. It's any moment. It could be today. It could be before next hour. It could be before the end of this hour. That trumpet can sound and we're all out of here. So we should be eagerly waiting for this. From heaven, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And this is what's going to happen. When He comes, we get transformed. In the twinkling of an eye, we get transformed. Not all of us have to die. The ones that are alive when this rapture event kicks off aren't going to die, but we will be changed. We will be transformed. And then all of us will be caught up to be with the Lord in the, in the air, to meet the Lord in the air. So the power that he has, the authority that he has. I think exousia is um, more of an authority term than a power term. Uh, the uh, exousia, the authority that he has to even to subject all things to himself. And this is authority that he will be exercising in the millennial kingdom, authority that he will be exercising in the fullness of time, authority that I don't think he's exercised yet, but he's waiting to exercise it. The first exercise of this authority is going to be the rapture of the church, see, and uh, other things there that come into that. And so that's the context then for chapter 4. Rapture doctrine feeds or or, or, uh, gives us the impact of the therefore in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, therefore, recognizing that the rapture could be today, identifying with rapture doctrine, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, in this way. In this way. I think rapture focused is in this way. Also, joy and crown, in this way. A couple of linguistic debates as far as grammatically. How do we understand the hutos? How do we understand the in this way? All right. So, Paul begins this epistle's conclusion with the tenderest address given to any local church. And I looked it up. Tenderest is appropriate. You could be most tender or tenderest. That's fine. It's even valid in Scrabble. It's on the TWL word list, so we're good on that. The tenderest address. He calls them my beloved, my longed for, my beloved. He doubles up the beloved. So my beloved brethren, my longed for brethren, my joying crown. And then he ends verse 1 with my beloved. All of those addresses. The tenderest address. He didn't call Corinth all these things. He didn't call them beloved. But not, he didn't double the beloved and he didn't add my longed for brethren, my joy and my crown. So uh, starting with beloved and longed for brethren, we have these terms and we relate to them. I think they, they not only were they true back then, they're true today. We have the, the common experience of separations and reunions and the things that happen in the body of Christ. So starting with subpoint A, my beloved and longed for brethren, my beloved, Wednesday, we took the time to look at a lot of beloved verses. The subpoint one then, the vocabulary is beloved, agapetos. And keep in mind, don't, sep- don't substitute a different kind of love and try to create an, a, a beloved application based on that. All right, so don't substitute. This is agape love. This is the, the beloved terminology that's the cognate of agape love. It's agapetos, right? It's not philetos. It's not storgetos, it's not uh, erogetos, so it's not eros love, it's not sexual love, it's not phileo love, it's not rapport love, it's not family love of, of storge where you have, 
you know, parental love for children or love between siblings, the natural family affections of storge love. It's none of that. It's God's agape love, whereby we are beloved. And if we try to substitute a different form of love and still render one another as beloved, we're going to fall short because those other loves fail. Agape never fails. That's clear. Agape is the love that never fails. And so, um, preview of wedding services coming up. Uh, other loves fail, and they often fail. And, uh, and you'll lose rapport, and you lose fellowship, and you lose the other kinds of love, sexual love. Other love goes, comes and goes. Agape never fails. And that's why it has to be foundational. Now we previously did an agapetos study back in chapter 2, so you have notes on that. We uh, did this in connection with Philippians 2.12. It is used throughout the New Testament as it relates to Jesus Christ. And I think right there makes a huge point. If God the Father says, behold my beloved son, behold my agapetos son, that's a special term. Because he could have used a lot of other terms, but this is the one that he used. He says Jesus is his agapetos, his beloved son. And, and so that then elevates, I think it elevates the compliment, it elevates the description by which if I'm going to regard you as agapetos, that means I have to regard you as the Father regarded Jesus. So how powerful is that? That's, uh, and if I'm, if I'm regarding you as something less than what God regarded Jesus, then I'm not truly regarding you as agapetos and I need to readjust in my perspective. So uh, at the baptism event of Matthew chapter 3, uh, at the Beelzebub accusation of uh, Matthew chapter 12, and then later in Matthew chapter 17. Really, at the kickoff of his ministry, at the halftime of his ministry, and at, in the fourth quarter, um, the Father made these three declarations. This is my beloved Son. See, the Mount of Transfiguration was the, was the third episode there. And Peter just couldn't shut up his mouth enough to, to, to listen, right? And so the Father said, will you shut up, Peter? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Peter was trying to you know, build three tabernacles and do some kind of crazy thing. So um, we have that. So it's used of the Father's beloved Son. Uh, Peter and James used it to refer to Paul and Barnabas as beloved brothers. The Jerusalem apostles with reference to Barnabas and Paul. And that right there, that use of beloved right there may have made all the difference in the world as you know, Jewish Christianity and Gentile Christianity could have been you know, harmed in a, in a terrible way. But the use of beloved brethren there, applying it to Paul and Barnabas, and specifically um, promoting and sanctioning and endorsing their Gentile ministry, it was huge. And that letter that was written in Acts 15, Acts 15 was huge. And then, of course, the book of Galatians and the rest of the New Testament that makes clear that we are neither Jew nor Gentile in the body of Christ. That we are, uh, perhaps, I think, the, the body of Christ is the, this planet's first uh, global solution to racism in the fact that we have a, a, a unified body that is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither uh, bond or free. And all of the other class distinctions that can come in um, in terms of sex or, or race or uh, economic status, all of that's thrown aside because we are in Christ, choice and precious in the sight of God. And then the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul takes this term, uses it 27 different times in vocative addresses, mostly to local churches, sometimes in reference to individuals. And so I'm not going to repeat all these, but um, 
I, I did actually improve the, the chapter 2 slide with the chapter 4 slide because I put little hints, little uh, cues, uh, asterisk marks if it's a local church verse and uh, little cross daggers if it's with reference to people. Friends of Paul's or fellow workers or beloved, uh, like Timothy was his beloved son, and uh, individuals that were called beloved in, uh, in those places, such as Romans 16, uh, 1 Corinthians 4.17, uh, Ephesians 6.21. You can spot those little cross daggers and find those. Uh, Philemon, verse 16, uh, Colossians 1.7 and Colossians 4. Three different verses there in Colossians 4. All with respect to people, all right? Certain people that Paul uh, referred to as beloved uh, kinsmen or beloved fellow workers or beloved uh, something, right? Connected to that. Then uh, the final uses, uh, additionally, beyond Paul's uses, uh, five times in 2 Peter chapter 3. Okay, five times in a chapter that I, I quote every, every time I start a Bible class with Second Peter chapter 3, according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things. Therefore, agapetoi, since you look for these things. And five times in that chapter, the imminency, the, the aspect of, of the new creation on the way and this creation passing away and the urgency of living the Word of God because there's unstable people that are perverting it. All right? And five times in that chapter, the term beloved is expressed. Six times in 1 John, four times in 3 John. You talk about a tiny little book, 25 verses and really fewer words than, than uh, 2 John or, or uh, Jude. And, uh, and yet, with fewer words than these other books, th- uh, four times the agapetos terminology appears. So, it's a significant study, and it's one that we ought to pay more attention to, and it's one that we ought to employ more often one to another. Now we move on to the epipathetos, the, uh, the longed-for application. And this really, I think, is... Uh, I want to retranslate verse 1. I don't like what the New American Standard did with it. I don't like what most English translations are doing with it, uh, because it, it almost looks like Beloved is the only is the only adjective that is applied to brethren. So therefore, my beloved brethren, uh, and, and this is a, a, a grammatical structure in which you 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 put an adjective in between uh, maybe an article and, and a noun, and so it's connected to that person, right? And so you could and you can shove multiple adjectives in there. You can talk about the long-winded pastor, the crazy pastor, the loud pastor, the obnoxious pastor, right? Um, but and, and so each one, you can have one by itself, or you can have a string of adjectives together. You can have two that are put together with an and, and that's what we have here. And so um, I did this Wednesday night, I don't mind doing it again, to show you. Here we go. I make it... We'll leave it like that. And I'll leave it maybe not as large as I want to make it, but just to show you <clears throat> to have these words all on that top line that we have this uh, therefore, and here's Adelphoi, there's brethren, therefore brethren of me. And you think, wow, that's just therefore my brethren. And he's not saying anything about them. Ah, not so. Because now we get the agapetoi kai epipathetoi. Those two are linked 
agapetoi, kai, epipathetoi. And so they're together with an and. So it's like, uh, you know, two descriptions then that are being described, uh, that the brothers are described as. So therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren. That's my translation. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren. And I'm not taking longed for and separating it out like in the New American Standard here. It kind of separates it out as a, as a relative clause, whom I long to see. All right? That's, that's wrong. It's just not an appropriate translation. That's not, uh, that's, that's, that does a different thing grammatically, syntactically. It's just not, not the uh, expression Paul used. It should be, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown. There's our second phrase, kara kai mu, my joy and crown. And so when you put that mu in parallel with that mu, I think it works. All right. In this way, in this way, hutos, stand firm in the Lord, agapetoi. So, what does it mean to long for? Epipathetos, to long for. That is to, to miss something. That is, it's not just a term for want. There's lots of terms to desire and want and like. But this is something that you previously had fellowship with and now it's been taken from you. And so you're longing for. And it's curious to me. Epipathetos. It's intensified with the epi. If you think about your thirst or your, or your uh, passions, uh, pathetos would address that. Strong's number is 1973, which uh, I don't know, my brother or anyone else with that as a birth year might might uh, you ever pick on your birth year and say that's going to be my Strong's number and then kind of build your whole Christian walk around that is dangerous. Don't do that. But <laughs> depending on your birth year, there are certain Greek words you don't want to build your whole Christian wife, life around. A, but this may be not a bad one. Epipathetos. Now this is the only place that it's used. There are two times in the church fathers and uh, they're very similar to what you might expect as we have it related here in the New Testament in 1 Clement 65. Make it larger. Now send back to us without delay. This is Clement in Rome writing to the Corinthians from Rome to Corinth in about 95, I think, 94 somewhere comparable to when John was writing Revelation in, on the Isle of Patmos, okay? First century. It's, not, it's, it's contemporaneous with Revelation. It is, um, it's not Bible. It doesn't belong in the Bible. It's not canon of Scripture. But it is an early Christian letter written from a place we know to places we know. So now send back to us without delay our messengers, uh, Claudius, and they're called apostles, apostolmenus, uh, send back to us without delay our messengers, Claudius, Ephibus, and Valerius, Beto, to, not Beto, Beto, together with Fortunatus, okay? We might call them lucky these days, uh, together with Fortunatus in peace and with joy so that they may report as soon as possible the peace and concord which uh, we have prayed for and long for, which we have prayed for and long for, that we too may all the more quickly rejoice over your good order. And that's the conclusion to First Clement. We also have the epistle of Pseudo-Barnabas or Barnabas 1.3. Again, it's not Scripture. It's an early Christian uh, epistle. Um, 
Therefore, I, who also am hoping to be saved, congratulate myself all the more, because among you I truly see that the Spirit has been poured out upon you from the riches of the Lord's fountain. How overwhelmed I was on your account by the long-desired sight of you. And this is what happens. The longer it goes, the harder it gets. And so that desire only builds as, uh, as you are long-desired. Uh, um. Yeah, I guess we can let the rest of that go. Being convinced, therefore, of this and conscious of the fact that I said many things in your midst, I know that the Lord traveled with me in the way of righteousness. And above all, I too am compelled to do this, to love you more than my own soul because great faith and love dwell in you though uh, through the hope of this life. And so here's somebody that was with them, that had taught them, they had fellowship together. Now he's separated and there is this long desired sight of you. And so that's what we might expect. All right, now the adjective or the, the term here is, is used only here in the New Testament, but we do have a verb. It comes from the verb epipatheo, just like uh, agapetos comes from a verb agapao, comes from a verb to love. And so if, uh, if agapao means to love with agape love, then an agapetos is the target of your, aga, of your agapao love. Likewise, epipatheo means to long for, and an epipathetos is the target of your longing. Strong's number for the verb is 1971. It just ends with an eo instead of an etos. It's the same E-P-I-P-O, uh, T-H with a theta, E-O, epipatheo is the term. Okay, patheo, epipatheo. All right. 1971 is the Strong's Numbers, and here we have nine uses. So here we have a little bit more to work with. We have more examples through the New Testament uh, context that we should be familiar with uh, in a number of places, including my favorite, First Tim, uh, Peter 2.2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word of God, that we should have a longing for doctrine. And if it's been a while since we've fed, we should get cranky like a baby who uh, it's been a while since they've been fed. And so they get cranky and, and, and they want to nurse because that's what they do, right? And as, as children of God, what, what should we be doing? Longing for the pure milk of the word. And if it's been a while since we've taken in the word of God, I think uh, we don't get cranky enough. I think we get complacent and believers get to the point where they can acclimate to the, to the starvation diet. And that's, uh, that's sad. All right. So Romans 1.11, we can run through these, won't take terribly long, and then we can get to the next issue. Remember, Romans was an epistle written to a group of believers that Paul had never been to. He'd never been to Rome before. If he knew some of these people, he knew them from elsewhere, or he knew them by reputation, friends of friends kind of a thing. And so he says... Um, Let's see, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, that's verse 7, so they are agapetoi, they are beloved, they are the called of Jesus Christ, they are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, not that I've ever met you, because your faith is being proclaimed through the whole world. So there's a reputation. Here's a flock that has tremendous faith. Here's a flock that's hungry for the Word of God. And Paul's just licking his chops, thinking, man, that's a, that's a place I got to get to. <laughs> that's a church I got to visit. That's, uh, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles, and here's a, here's a doctrinal Bible church in Rome, and I've never been there. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, 
preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers. So he's been making a prayer item about this. Lord, can you open this door? Can you get me there? Would you reassign me to Rome? Let me get to Rome. Making request, if perhaps, now, at last, by the will of God. That's that same iffy language about maybe being in the rapture generation we saw in Philippians 3.11. If, perhaps, now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I epipatheo, I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that they can be grounded. They were an ungrounded flock. And however they got there, we know there were people from Rome in, Pe- in Jerusalem on Pentecost. We assume they went back to Rome after Pentecost. And so the first believers that arrived there on that basis, but they weren't founded by the apostle Peter. They weren't founded by any apostle. When Paul's writing Romans, he says they have not yet even been founded. He wants to establish them. You may be established, fixed. And that's uh, an expression we looked at in our Roman series. But this is uh, his longing. And he might imagine, I mean, it'd be like being called to be the apostle to the Russians and you've never been to Russia, right? Or the apostle to the, Fili- the, the Filipinos and you've never once been to the Philippines. Just imagine the apostle to the Gentiles and he's never been to Rome. And how, uh, and here's Rome, the capital of the Gentile world empire of his day, and uh, how that, uh, how that impacted him. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so I think clearly we're, we're seeing positive examples in all of these. Um, it's possible to long for something wrongly. You know, we can long for the wrong thing. We can, uh, uh, we can have our desires misoriented. Uh, but I think the examples we see here are all going to be positive examples. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We're told, indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And so here's a longing. And if, if this does not apply yet, it's probably because you're still too young and healthy, but it will happen soon enough, okay? It will happen soon enough. There will come a point when, uh, when in, it just, you just start groaning and you find that sitting down has a sound effect and, and standing up has a different sound effect. And you end up doing a kind of a, uh, okay? And I'm not sure if that's standing up or sitting down, but it comes with the motion of getting that body moving again when it was happy to be sitting there for whatever length of time. And so we groan. In this earthly tent, we groan. And beyond, of course, it's a little you know humorous to talk about the, the aches and pains and whatever, but then there's the, the serious stuff. How about sin, all right? How about the fact that in me dwells no good thing? That I have a sin nature I've received from Adam. And this sinful nature is that nagging little you know, thing inside of me that keeps whispering this and whispering that. And, and uh, I hate the dumb thing, right? But we can't get rid of it until we get rid of it. And then, wow, that next body doesn't have one of those. That next body is, is sinless. And so uh, how fun is that going to be? And so uh, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. 
will not be found naked. And so um, we discussed this in the Second Corinthians series. I believe this chapter teaches an interim body, something that is clothed, the robe that is provided just for the interim, just for the meantime, so that uh, the, the saints that have gone before aren't naked in their naked soul spirit. Uh, because they're waiting for the, the resurrection. They don't get their resurrected glorified bodies until the uh, trumpet sounds. And so we have that there. All right, Second Corinthians 9.14. 2 Corinthians 9.14, we have the opportunity to cooperate together financially. We have the opportunity to minister together. That uh, they were invited to join with what the Macedonians were doing, but only if they could do it in grace. If it was going to be manipulation or legalism or any false motives, Paul said, we don't want it. But if you can get on board in a grace way, you're very welcome in grace. And so uh, that's what chapter 8 and 9 are all about. And he says in verse 12, this, uh, the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints. That's almost like a side effect. <laughs> yeah, it's doing that. It's fully supplying the need of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Wow. So we get to multiply the praise and thanksgiving chorus. It's not just one person or two people or one church or two flocks, multiple believers and multiple flocks. They all get to give the hallelujah chorus together. There is a crescendo of, of uh, praise that can go up. And that's the beauty of, of this kind of worship. We're joining together in thanksgiving and praise. And that's a chorus. I, mean, I don't care, even if you got a, you know, Jacob Williams, you got the best singing voice in the world, you're just one, one singing voice. You know, what can two and three and four, a whole quartet, what can, what can a choir do when all those voices are blended together in a, in a symphony, some symphonious kind of way? So, um, overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. And I mean, they're going to, part of that great joy is, man, can you believe Corinth got on board? <laughs> can you believe Corinth joined in our grace ministry? There's something to amen over. Your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. They yearn for you. They don't just want more money from you. They don't like, you know, that crowd wanted more bread from Jesus. They weren't yearning for Jesus. They were yearning for more bread. And this uh, this, uh, passage isn't talking about yearning for more money. They're yearning for you. They can't wait. They say, wow, wouldn't it be great to go to Corinth someday to meet these guys? Wouldn't it be great for if one of these guys came to us someday? I would love to meet a Corinthian believer because of the grace that they're expressing here. And it creates that longing based upon the grace. So thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. So what are the things we long for? What are the guest speakers we've never brought in here and we're longing for them? Why do we long for them? You know, are we, are we just dying for the day that we could bring in... Uh, uh, careful. We could... <laughs> I don't like naming names, you know, because if I name a name and it's insulting, then I'm on record and it sits on the website forever. But, but they're, 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 it's safe to say there's a long list of people that are not on my short list to ever bring in here. And I wouldn't want them to speak in this pulpit. I wouldn't want them to speak to you just because of what it is, all right? But then there's another list I would love because of the grace 
because I would long for the opportunity. I would be, I'd consider it a privilege and an honor. Man, I would have, you know, like when we had Gene Cunningham here, what a thrill. You know, a hero, somebody I've known for all these years, or uh, Ralph LaRosa, any of these guys. We long for them because of their grace. So that's 2 Corinthians 9.14. Of course, we have Philippians, and we have the, uh, before we even get to the, the chapter uh, for use, we had it in 1.8, and we had it again in 2.26. We had it in 1.8 and 2.26 before we get to the epipathetos of, uh, of 4.1. This is the part of the background on Philippians. God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He had been through Philippi once. He had an overnight stay. It wasn't very pleasant. And he had to leave in the morning. Okay? He was actually there for a lead up to that jail night. I, should, I don't want to misspeak. He was there for a lead up to that jail night of some unknown period of time. Uh, but then he had that night in jail and had to leave after being released. And so he wanted to go back. But he was never allowed to go back. The opportunity never presented itself to go back. And I think that uh, proves this could not have been written uh, during that third missionary journey. It was prior to that scene. All right. I think it had to have been written prior to Acts chapter 20 because of these expressions here. All right. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And he talks about the fact that he'd only seen them once that they had seen in him, verse 30, and now here to be in him. They only saw him the one time. And now all they can do is hear. They get reports of things that are happening. In chapter 2 and verse 26, there's more longing. Epaphroditus was longing for the Philippians and was distressed because they had heard that he was sick. And so there's a longing that he had wanted to go back and, and uh, have a reunion with, with the Philippian saints. See, when you leave a ministry to go serve in another ministry and, uh, and you miss those guys and you think, wow, when am I ever going to get back and have a chance to see those guys again? Because that was the ministry that birthed me. That was the ministry that trained me. That was the ministry I went forth with. See, it's so anytime Pastor Dan comes back or Pastor Cliff comes back or anytime it's like a family reunion at that point for those that are ministering the Word of God elsewhere. Anytime Stan Newton comes back, see, because Stan was out of this church too. And, uh, and uh, who else? Robert Rice. I guess we could, if we, if we were going to have a full reunion of all these guys, we'd have to bring several back. George Dykeman, bring him back. Bring um, Donnie Dolan back. Bring, there's a bunch of these guys. Of course, former pastors. We can bring back Pastor Ralph. And, and um, yeah. Anyway, and so here's Epaphroditus. Hey, there's an idea. <laughs> We're approaching our 50th anniversary. There's an idea. I know Westside Bible Church in uh, Arizona, They last weekend was their 50th anniversary as a church. And, uh, and they had a big reunion thing out there. And, and I want to hear from Pastor Larry how that went. All right, 1 Thessalonians 3.6. The uh, event in Thessalonica was only three weeks. He was with them for three weeks. And then the mob drove him out of town and took a cash guarantee from Jason that they weren't coming back. And so um, Paul longed to go back and see them and couldn't. So instead he sent Timothy. <laughs> so it says in 1 Thessalonians 3.1, Therefore when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. 
You ever experience something you think you just can't take anymore? You think one more day, just can't handle one more day? Well, the idea that I'm either going to sneak back myself or I've got to send a spy in there. And that's what he does with Timothy. He sends Timothy in there, probably 10 years old, 12 years old is my guess. And uh, like the Romans are going to be concerned about him or or that uh, uh, these uh, critics are going to be concerned about him. So we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Think about the ministry this child can have, this young man, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Anyway, I'm headed for verse 6. Let me get down there. When we could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought to us good news. Remember, there's all kinds of good news, not just how to get saved. Brought to us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. It's mutual. It's reciprocal. It goes both directions. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live truly live. Now we live abundantly if you stand firm in the Lord. So there's our stand firm. We'll be covering that next in the, in the Philippians 4.1 application. Therefore, my beloved brethren, stand firm. And we'll, uh, we'll deal with that. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.4. This is Paul's last will and testament. In 1 Timothy, he knows he's going to be released. In 2 Timothy, he knows he's not going to be released. He knows that his execution is imminent and uh, he will have no more earthly freedom in his physical life. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. And he's going to urge him by the end of this epistle to come and come as fast as he can so he can make it in time and uh, to stop off and bring a cloak that he left somewhere and to not forget the uh, the parchments. <laughs> so uh, there it is. All right. Yeah, you get some of those details there in chapter 4. James 4, 5. Hebrews James. longing. Now here is, um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? You adulteresses. That's not good. <laughs> when God's calling names, that's an attention getter. When he calls Jerusalem, Sodom and Gomorrah, that's an attention getter. When he calls uh, these believers here adulteresses, that's an attention getter. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, you used to be an enemy, but he saved you. And while you were enemies, Christ died for the ungodly, but he saved you. And so now that you're no longer enemies, why are you making yourself the enemy that you no longer are? You're making yourself into an adversarial position. You make yourself to be an enemy. Or do you think 
that the Scripture speaks to no purpose. Is the Bible here for no reason? What is the, why, why is this said this way? He jealously desires, and this is our epipatheo, God lusts, God jealously desires, God longs for what? The Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. In other words, for the Word of God to have its full impact, to dwell richly within us, only the Holy Spirit can do that. And if we're friends with the world, it's not happening. If we're walking according to this world, we're not walking according to the Spirit. If we're walking in darkness, we're not walking in the light. We can't have both. We can't be sitting in the, on the fence, being a little bit spiritual, a little bit worldly. Doesn't work that way. If you're out of fellowship, you're carnal. And so the Spirit is not teaching you the Word of God, is not ministering the Word of God, is not actively residing, is not indwelling you. And this is what He desires. The Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. So the Bible's not there for no reason and the Holy Spirit's not there for no reason. He put the Holy Spirit in you so it can minister the Word of God to you and can dwell richly. And you can stop being a friend of the world. And that's what God desires. That's what God not not strong enough. That's what God wants, not strong enough. That's the will of God, not strong enough. That's what he lusts for. That's what he longs for. God longs for the word of God to be dwelling in you through his spirit. He longs for that. That's strong enough because that's the word that he uses. And then finally 1 Peter 2:2, 2, 2, which I already gave away. This is the babies and the milk. But in order to do this, I think it's nice agreement with James. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You won't be dwelling in darkness and doing this. You've got to put all that aside. Lay aside the deeds of the flesh. Lay aside that filthy garment. Put on the new garment. Like, so uh, putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Longing for the milk, that intense di- that lust, that longing, that uh, intense desire, that craving. And not, it's definitely not a take it or leave it kind of approach. It's definitely not a, well, you know, what, uh, who are the Cowboys playing this week? You know, uh, is, is church a priority? Uh, you know, well, you know. And we finally got some sunshine. I need to be on the golf course. We've had rain far too long. I'm, I'm getting rusty on my putt or whatever. I don't know. So people have priorities. And is in that list of 1 to 10, where does doctrine come? You know, is it number 6 or 7 or 8 on your priority list and so many things crowded out? That's not epipatheo. It's supposed to be epipatheo, okay? Longing for the pure milk of the word. Whereas if you miss it, it hurts. You get, that's the cranky baby illustration. All right. Now, 10 minutes left. Time to get in trouble. I'm going to be a little off color, maybe. I don't know. The uh, beloved and longed for brethren could be called the joy and crown kindred. The joy and crown kindred kindred, right? Back to Philippians 4.1. If we want an acronym, if we want a, something memorable, therefore my beloved brethren, 
my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown kindred, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And so we've got this tandem again, like uh, beloved and longed-for was a tandem, joy and crown is a tandem. And so no joy, no crown, they go together. And uh, the fact that crowns are future yet present, that's a, that's a powerful principle, and we're going to be seeing that here shortly. But if you want to make an acronym, I'm not sure I'm going to use this, I'm thinking about it, the joy and crown kindred, so we have Jack, right? We have the Jack acronym. And think about Jack. And there's a lot of expressions you can learn with Jack. In fact, we've got so many Jack figures of speech, some of them aren't appropriate in church, but uh, we have different Jack idioms. And I would ask, do you have joy and crown kindred? All right. So this acronym may soon become very useful in various doctrinal studies. Christians who drift from consistent local church fellowship, for example. (laughs) All right. Yeah. All right. I'm also working on a Jill. So stay tuned for that. You know, if they're useful, I'll use them. If they're silly, oh well. But the, uh, the blessings of the joy and crown kindred, because that's who we are. That's who we are. The joy and crown kindred. And if we lose sight of that, if we stop thinking of one another as our joy and crown kindred, then we can start to harbor mental attitude issues against one another, and that leads to the Yodi and Sinaki issues. That leads to the, the fight between brothers and sisters. That leads to all kinds of things that we shouldn't even be there. But if we keep the joy and crown kindred aspect as, as, a, as, a, as a reality, well then, hey, of course, I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to turn the other cheek. I'm going I'm to I'm get over it if I get offended. Okay. Something offends me. Oh, well. Okay. And I give that to the Lord. I release any, any uh, authority. I release any obligation. I release any uh, consequence for that offense because the Lord took care of that. If I can keep a joy and crown kindred in my thinking. Okay? So, understanding. Understanding doctrines and people takes time. Let me, let me just, let's, let's look at some of this. Okay? With a joy and crown. Um, yeah, let's start with that. Um, because there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a passage that relates to this one in a, in a certain way. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses 13 and 14, it talks about a joy and a crown. And yet it also talks about why it takes time to, to learn these things. So understanding doctrines and people takes time with some partial understandings along the way. Second Corinthians one, 13 and 14. You see what I'm talking about here. Second Corinthians 1, 14, because here is our reference to the crown. Here's the reference to joy and crown. We are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours. A reason to be proud, that's a crown. That's a crown, right? That, uh, you know, the, the gray hair is a crown. It's a crown because it's a reason to be proud. It's a mark of your 
age and your wisdom and your maturity. Um, a woman, a godly woman is a crown, the joy and crown of her husband. There's other things that are called a crown. And a crown is not um, something you keep hidden. The crown sits there on your head and everybody stares at it. It's, it's, it's unhideable. Okay? That's a joy and a crown. And so the reason to be proud of them, the reason of them to be proud of Paul, that's what we're looking at here in, in 2 Corinthians 1.14. But there's, there's issues that lead up to that in verses 13 and 14. And so when we're talking about uh, we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus, well then I want to know how this works and I want to know how to get here. I want to know how this happens. And so if I back up, verse 12 says, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in in the world and especially towards you. And so here's a ministry for which there's nothing to be ashamed of. Here's a ministry for which Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I do what I do. Or I did what I did. See, looking back at it with hindsight. For we write nothing else to you. We write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. Because sometimes you'll misread something. Or sometimes you'll understand it but not fully understand it. And so you keep reading it. And you keep trying to understand it. And you understand it more and more. Just as you also partially did, partially notice, partially did understand us. And they never fully understood him, just partially. Even after 1 Corinthians, even after the painful epistle, even after the second epistle, you wonder, did they ever come to fully understand Paul? And I think they finally did. I think in the consequences, I think they finally did, and they were able to get on board with the grace ministry, and they uh, were able. They gave Titus reason to rejoice, they gave Paul reason to rejoice, but uh, to start with, it was not an easy road. And so, when we think about it, <laughs> partial understanding is along the way, and this is true for doctrines. This is true for people. You know, there are some people you can know for years and still. Uh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> you know, you know. I think that was a joke. He jokes a lot. Hmm, was this a joke? I think so. I didn't take it that way. Hmm. Well, I kind of did. Well, if it's not a joke, it's kind of an insult. Wait a minute. Maybe he wasn't joking. And now I don't know what to think because I was either just insulted or no, it was a joke. Okay. But see, I don't know him that well. You know what another word for partial understanding is? Misunderstanding. (laughs) I mean, seriously. And we all have that. Happens here, okay? Recently, not so recently. It happens here. And we have misunderstandings. So what do we do? Well, we take time and we show grace. And eventually we'll, we'll know better or not, okay? And you've been married 27 years and you're still figuring something out. Well, wait a minute, okay? You think somebody I've been married to 27 years, I would know better by now. Why do I learn something 
this morning that I never knew before. Wow, how does that happen? You never told me that. You hiding that before we got married? (laughs) Wait a minute. All right. And so we have this. And this is why it has to be in grace. And that's why there's no regrets. That's why there's no manipulations. That's why, as, as I said back to verse 12 again, the testimony of our conscience. So whatever it is, whatever it was, just ask me about it. I'll tell you. I'm not hiding anything. I'm not embarrassed about it. And, it, and if, if it's misunderstood, then let's talk it out. In holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom. Nothing carnal, nothing from the flesh. Because that's earthly, natural, demonic. That's selfish ambition. That's, that's the terrible thing from James 3 we don't want to go into. In the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. And so read it. Read it again. Reread it. Read it under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit that you would be receptive to the truth, that you would receive it in the spirit in which it's delivered. And I hope you will understand it until the end. So there are understandings. And and so sometimes it takes time. Understanding doctrines and people takes time. And there's going to be some partial understandings along the way. So what do we do? We don't just give up on it. We work it out. We work it out. And we, and we understand it over time. Or not. What if we never understand it? Are we good with that? We just in grace let it go and trust in the Lord? Okay? Another passage. Or no, same passage. Joy in our brethren is derived via reasons to be proud and they are mutually reciprocal. You can't separate out the godly pride. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have pride in a legitimate way. Joy in our brethren is derived via reasons to be proud. That's what verse 14 is talking about here. So the brothers and sisters of this flock, where do I find joy in any brother or sister of Austin Bible Church? And I will find, absolutely without exception, every cause for joy is also a reason for joy to be proud. It's also a reason to boast in the Lord. It's also a reason to just think and wonder and go, can't wait to see what gold, silver, and precious stones that ends up being at the judgment seat of Christ. And I can draw joy in watching service and watching sacrifice and watching love and grace and all these things played out. And uh, as it says in verse 14, we are yours and you are ours. So the reason, we are your reason to be proud, as you also are our reason to be proud in the day of our Lord Jesus, waiting for the rapture, waiting for the trumpet, waiting to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the day of the Lord Jesus for us in the church age, okay? And so uh, we have those things. And uh, the reasons to not be rejoicing, <laughs> the reasons to not be proud are reasons then to, uh, to pray harder and to be an intercessory prayer for our brothers and sisters and over certain things that will not be rewarded in the judgment seat of Christ, over certain things that will be wood, hand, stubble. Uh, reasons not to be joyful but to be sorrowful when we watch a, a stumble, when we watch a, an, an aspect, not to judge them, not to condemn them, but there's certainly no joy in it. Okay? All right. I am three minutes long. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Father, for this morning. The time just flew by. 
Thank you for joy and crown kindred. I pray that we will uh, have some fun with this, but also learn. We can learn, Father, what it means to have joy and crown kindred, because that's who we are in Christ. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.